At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all the men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil. Capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher. As a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live, audio version for thee in this eternal now. Anthony Peak materialized at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Cheating the Ferryman. He revealed an extraordinary model of life after death that unites ideas from ancient philosophy, neuroscience, quantum physics, and consciousness studies. His research explains several seemingly mysterious experiences such as precognition, deja vu, synchronicity, near-death experiences, and out-of-body experiences. The tech archons nagged us around an hour and 15 minutes, alas. Of course, it had to be when I was about to ask him about different afterlife models. Thus and thusly, full interview for everyone. But, but... As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include a past interview I did with Tony, where he explains many of his ideas from his book, Is There Life After Death?, where he does talk about afterlives. A perfect complement to this interview, and one that will blow your lower and higher mind. Thank you to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. You are amazing and your support, company, and feedback help grow this podcast. August will be full of Anubis in the dog days of summer, with shows on Philip K. Dick, David Icke, 
conspiracy theory, Sophia Gnosticism, Jungian therapy, and so much more. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. Expect more shootings, wars, addiction, and suicide problems, mass depression, and societal collapse until more look inward while breaking the outward spell of hating angels. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or many of my guests and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatever. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live. Eh, I'm sure some of your daemons know that we should play Aaron's already legendary speech from Midnight Mass. Beyond the greatest esoteric speech ever on television, it just fits perfectly with Tony's ideas. Here you go. I remember that every atom in my body was forged in a star. This matter, this body is mostly just empty space after all, and solid matter is just energy vibrating very slowly, and there is no me. There never was. The electrons of my body mingle and dance with the electrons of the ground below me and the air. I'm no longer breathing. And I remember, there is no point where any of that ends, and I begin. I remember I am energy, not memory, not self. My name, my personality, my choices all came after me. I was before them, and I will be after, and everything else is pictures, picked up along the way. Fleeting little dreamlets printed on the tissue of my dying brain. And I am the lightning that jumps between. I am the energy firing the neurons and... I'm returning. Just by remembering, I'm returning home. It's like a drop of water falling back into the ocean which it's always been a part. All things, a part. All of us, a part. You, me, and my little girl, and my mother, and my father. Everyone who's ever been, every plant, every animal, every atom, every star, every galaxy, all of it. More galaxies in the universe than grains of sand on the beach. And that's what we're talking about when we say God. The one. The cosmos. And its infinite dreams. We are the cosmos dreaming of itself. It's simply a dream that I think is my life every time. But I'll forget this. I always do. I always forget my dreams. 
But now, in the split second, in the moment I remember, the instant I remember, I comprehend everything at once. There is no time. There is no death. Life is a dream. It's a wish. Made again and again and again and again and again and again and on into eternity. And I am all of it. I am everything. I am all. I am that I am. And we are live. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Desert of the Real. For those of you who are will be listening in audio, you missed some of the, <clears throat> the introduction, but part of it was from uh, in the theme of uh, this insane universe. Uh, why do men have nipples? Because it's a mad demiurge. And the, the clip I use is uh, from Time Bandits with uh, David Warner, who plays this technocratic evil representation technocratic satan and david uh sadly passed away last week so it's a good time to honor him not only was he amazing in time bandits but he did a great job as the demiurge in the original tron movie uh a great actor shakespearean shakespearean brilliant actor my favorite probably is him playing uh Jack the Ripper in Time After Time with Malcolm McDowell playing H.G. Wells. Very underrated movie, but a wonderful movie. So, But let us honor David and all the great uh, work he's done to bring that gnosis to us. And with us, I'm very excited to have my friend, a friend of the Gnostics and a brilliant researcher, Anthony Peake. Anthony, thanks for coming back. Hi, Miguel. Really great to be linking up with you again. You know, that really reminded me again, great movies, but that uh, I was only reading recently about, you know, why men have nipples, you know, from these kind of curious things. You think, why is that? You know, it, uh, and apparently something to do with saving time in the in the in the in the womb. So we're all born androgynous. And then we all change as it goes along and they don't and obviously whatever was designing it or whatever it was decided that we just leave the nipples there you know leave them to ossify you know. <laughs> but I, haven't seen the, I haven't seen the jim curry one i thought that was really good yeah that's the cable guy and of course he's doing a spoof off of midnight express the oliver <laughs> stone movie so yeah yeah the other day I, I always love this joke uh men have nipples and my cat my male cat was laying on his back on the porch getting sunlight and i go the cat male cats have nipples too the demiurge is insane the archons are crazy but uh I didn't you, know that. Mind you, you have had some very strange looks from your neighbours fondling your cat, <laughs> looking for their nipples, particularly a male cat. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what actually that kind of heretical um, deviation that can possibly be defined as, but it's probably a good one. Yeah, probably, yeah. We were saying earlier on, probably it's the kind of thing that our mutual friends Led Zeppelin would probably be interested in some way or other. <laughs> yes, true. And with us, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing on this Sunday? Oh, I'm just fine. Um, as always, looking forward to a good show with Anthony here. I'm a bit familiar with the Cheating the Ferryman uh, concept, so I'm going to learn a lot more about it this time, I'm sure. Hopefully so. Hopefully oh, yeah. yeah. 
the book is a great read as i was telling anthony's like the akashic records uh it's got everything you ever want if you want uh sufism gnostic mysticism if you want quantum physics near-death experience studies uh anything you need from whatever angle you're gonna get in this book it was just a, an incredible read uh in fact uh how does it start uh let me quote there's one passage anthony you say uh, you say that this book is evidence of our potential immortality. We will now embark on a voyage of discovery that will take us across oceans of ideas to disembark onto a new continent of scientific theories, which will suggest that you are an immortal being, one who will never die. So let us set sail. So that's, that's the reason you wrote this book. Eh? Or Tell us how this book came about. Well, really, um, it's um, it's not a reworking, nor is it a rewriting of, but way, way back in 1999, when I started my writing career, um, I wrote a, an initial manuscript, which was called Cheating the Ferryman. And um, over a period of time, I, I got one publishing deal uh, with a publisher, and they wanted me to rewrite it, and we wrote it. In the end, we fell out. Then another publisher came along around about 19, 2005, and they wanted to, me re, to rewrite it again. Um, but their argument was that we can't call it Cheating the Ferryman because people won't get it. They won't understand the nuance of it. Um, so we'd like to call it Is There Life After Death? Um, the Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die. And of course, as I argued with them, well, I don't talk about what happens after we die. I mean, this is not what I talk about. <laughs> and they said, and I said, you're also probably insulting your readership to say that people won't get the, the joke of cheating the ferryman. You know, people are a bit more literate than publishers think. Um, but they won because they were the publisher. They were putting all the money up. They were paying me. Yeah. So, you know, I wrote what they want to do. But then, you know, you've you know, I've had a series of books and, you know, nine, nine books later, 10 books later. Um, I, I developed the idea and I'd added more and more meat to the bone. And I approached the same publisher who were brave enough to take a chance with me way back. Because um, at that, this time, I've now got four different publishing houses publishing me in, in different, different uh, categories. But because I'm one of the most successful authors uh, in terms of book sales and everything, basically, what I say, it doesn't, it doesn't mean what I say goes, but really I'll make my point and I will say, look, you know, what I would really like to do is to write a version of the first book, knowing the things I know now, rather than the things I knew then, because over the last decade and a half, I've interfaced with top researchers in altered states of consciousness, people researching DMT, linking up with people like yourself. And I really wanted, and I felt that the, the overall hypothesis of cheating the ferryman had broadened out massively. And the evidence I now have for cheating the ferryman is extraordinary. So I said to them, look, I'd like to rewrite it, but I want to call it cheating the ferryman. And they said, yeah, of course you can. So this, this is how it came about. Um, and I'm, I'm, I was really quite pleased with, with how it, it's come about. I do suggest to people, it's probably useful to read Is Their Life After Death and indeed all my other books, because you can see how my ideas develop. Um, but you know, you don't need to, you can pick up this book and you can read it in its entirety without needing any of the previous books to read. Wonderful. Well, glad you wrote it. And for the audience, uh, when we get to the questions, as always, please, please type uh, all caps, lots of question marks. Uh, 
Super Chats will get to you, and Vince will get to your questions, too. Uh, before we really delve into your book, Anthony, I had a, a couple of questions. One is, do you ever, when you're sitting there in your computer and you're doing all this research and simulation theory, hologram, and then you kind of get back, you look around, you go, wait a second, none of this is real. I'm not real. What am I supposed to do now? Go have dinner with my wife and you go talk to your wife. We're not real. None of this is real. And she's like, Anthony, eat your shepherd's pie. You know, uh, you know that, is, that is exactly how it is. That <laughs> really is truly how it is. I mean, she'll go around to me and she'll say, what? What? You're looking at nipples for cats. You're like, no, no, this is real. I'll, this I'll, is I'll real. mention that to her. I'll, when we finished, I'll go downstairs and say, do you know, Nipple, cats have nipples. I was going to say nipples have cats, but of course that is just as possibility for a holographic nature. <laughs> Ownership could be the nipples that own the cat. Yeah. Um, we're getting into some bizarre areas here. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, for instance, I used to do a, t uh, a regular show on BBC Radio Merseyside over here in the UK. And the guy that I used to do interviews with uh, used to used to do the show with a guy called Billy Butler. And the amount of times he'd say to me, he said, how do you sleep at night? He said, things just are. Why do you question everything? What, you know, it just is. And to me, it's always been it's not just is the very fact that something exists rather than nothing to me is extraordinary. And also, as I was saying on a recent interview as well, I share the, the wonderment with people like Einstein and Max Tegmark about the idea of how is it that the universe can be expressed mathematically? How can we, how can we as human beings who've presumably invented in some way mathematical structures, they can be used to define the inner structures of a black hole? And you go, how can that be? You know, it's just <laughs> head blowing. And you just realize that, of course, this is not what it seems. You know, and anybody who took any type of reflection for a moment without taking so much reflection that your brain falls out. But effectively, it is weird. The fact that, mm -hmm. as I say in the book, you know, I'm something, I'm a conscious sentient something that hasn't existed for billions of years, exists for a minute amount of time on a really obscure planet, on an obscure galaxy <laughs> in the art end of the, of the universe. And I live for a tiny amount of time, and then I die for a load of billions of years. What's the bloody point? <laughs> you know, you my... saw Led Zeppelin live. Isn't that enough? Tony? Isn't that enough? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the tragic thing, isn't it? There's probably sentient creatures on, um, I don't know, uh, one of these new eco planets that they're discovering. And they've never heard of Led Zeppelin. I mean, Jesus. I mean, crying out loud, you know, you know, how, how could they exist? Really? Is really, you know, um, how could they never live without Kashmir? You know, it's uh... <laughs> that was one of my favorite songs. Yeah, Absolutely. favorite albums. Yeah, Physical Graffiti. Yeah, it it is mind boggling. I mean, my wife is very much into that stuff, so it's kind of like who's gonna attack who first? Like, I just discovered this isn't real. <laughs> so, is your wife into this, or is she more down to earth? Oh, she she's totally, completely, and utterly down to earth. You, I I couldn't have married a more <laughs> a more left-brained female if I'd possibly tried. I mean, she loves <laughs> figures. She loves spreadsheets. She loves analyzing figures, but she's not in least bit interested. Although she's experienced things with me where she's witnessed mm. things. Like I'll give an example of just how weird our relationship is. Many years ago, we were in um, staying with my brother-in-laws in Cheltenham. 
And I, I was really interested in these synchronicities that were happening, that, that you know, the, the Jungian library angel was just there for me all the time. And every time I needed a book or needed something, it was just there provided, which I'd argue was my daemon. So we're in this crowded um, secondhand bookstore. Books are piled high everywhere. There's no rhyme nor reason to any of the books. There's no catalog or anything. They're just everywhere. And she turns around to me and she goes, you know, you think you're being guided here. And I said, yeah. And she does her normal, God. And she said, for instance, what kind of book do you need now that you think your library angel is going to supply to you? Right. <laughs> so I said, I actually, funnily enough, I need a biography of William Blake. <laughs> she went, oh, for Christ's sake. And it was right in her eye line. She pulled it out and threw it across the shop and stormed out. <laughs> that, wow. that is the kind of the dynamic. But I think sometimes we need that kind of challenge, you know, because we can get very into these things and we can become very weird and get carried away. But we need that kind of grounding sometime, I think. And I definitely have that grounding. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's like that uh, story where Aldous Huxley is taking mescaline and he's high and he's communing with nature and he's just all happy. And then he's like, he looks over and he sees a sink full of dishes and he's like, I need to come down and wash my dishes. You know, it would be nice if we could just be in the Pleroma 24-7, but then we're not going to pay our bills or take care of our families or wash our dishes. That's the thing, isn't it? And that's the frustration that you 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 can think all these great ideas and thoughts. And I, I read all the time and I'm thinking all the time and coming up with ideas all the time. But the reality is that, you know, you've got to be practical, you know, and you have to be, you know, that's how life works. But it doesn't. But it means that dreamers like us can be need civilization needs dreamers like us mm -hmm. to come up with the wacky ideas and one out of 10 might might be sensible and i'd argue that cheating the ferryman is one of those wacky ideas that's off the wall that nobody else has really come up with that people ask me do you believe in it and my argument is it's not a question i'm not a believer i don't do belief i do <laughs> i do information and i do logic and i do what's the information telling you and yeah, i follow, follow the, the data you always follow, follow the, data, the data yeah absolutely you know and to me this is the most important thing you know and i i i, I might be wrong you know there might be something somebody points out that my physics is wrong my quantum physics is wrong or my interpretation of neurology is wrong that's great i have no problem i didn't start this book trying to prove anything quite the opposite i didn't know where the hell i was going with it you know when i started reading re writing the very first book i didn't know where the hell i was going i didn't even know what i wanted to write you know i just was interested in deja vu that was it that was the only <laughs> thing I was interested in. And have you seen lines about that? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen any recent movies that are Italian uh, or Damon in the in the in the peak way? For example, I watched this great movie called Everything Everywhere at Once, and I'm like, this is an Anthony Peak movie. Everybody every keeps minute. Telling me that. You know, I get I get messages regularly from people saying, have you seen this movie? Because I'd argue it's ingrained in the zeitgeist. I'd argue that the cheating the ferryman idea, although people don't know of cheating the ferryman, hopefully broadcasts like this will make people start to realize that somebody is doing the science of this. But it just seems that more and more films are being made and TV mm -hmm. series are being made, all of which will have these themes. Now, I a few years ago, I did... Um, a podcast with my good friend Martin Martin Higgins called um, Is This the End of the Ontological Movie? And we went through a lot of these movies that, you know, from Vanilla Sky onwards to, of course, The Matrix, but even obscure films like uh, Triangle, which was an amazing British movie. Um, you've also got films like Run, Run Lola Run, which was, mm. a, I think it was German. 
And you also have, of course, Irreversible, the, the Noye movie. And of course, Noye, who is the director of Irreversible, um, is a temporal lobe epileptic. And temporal lobe epilepsy is central to an awful lot of the things I write about. Um, but for the all, but just as a final point here, there's a TV series that's proved very popular in the UK recently called Life After Life. Mm. And watch it, it's really good, but watch it. And people have been bombarding me with messages saying, this is your book. Oh, wow. Literally, it is somebody who dies and keeps coming back, going back to the start of their lives, and they live it again. But they know something that they didn't know in the last life. Mm-hmm. And this little girl, Ursula, just grows up and then dies and comes back. And and people were confused. And I'm turning around, banging up and down, going, I'm doing the science of this. I can show the science of how this happens. And, of course, everybody ignores me, you know, as they always do. <laughs> yeah, Um yeah, there's so much. I mean, yeah, the show uh, Severance, first season of Russian Doll. It almost—I wonder—are yeah, we Doll. consciously catching up, and it's being expressed? Uh, we're projecting this, or maybe again, there was a generation completely influenced by Philip K. Dick and Ridley yeah. Scott. So, there are their ideas sort of being filtered in the next generation. I think I so. I think you know we are both huge admirers of Philip K. Dick, and as as you know, I wrote. Um, a biography of Philip K. Dick, The Man Who Remembered the Future. Mm-hmm. And um, funnily enough, that has recently come out um, as an audio book um, without me reading, not me reading it. I didn't know it was coming out and it's proving very popular, particularly in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, you know, we, we, our minds are more open to these things. And I think our minds are more open to them because we are now living in a world, we're living in a Philip K. Dick world, as Philip K. Dick once said. And, you know, we're now understanding the, inf- the the power of virtual reality, how virtual reality you can take, put on a, an Oculus headset, an Oculus Rift or the, the, the new Oculus, put a headset on. And it's really extraordinary. Even your hands are reproduced in the, in the, in the, in the simulation and you can move your hands around, pick things up. And I've, I argue in one of my previous books and I say, imagine a scenario that, you know, you have a full tactile feedback suit that you're within. And you interface inside that environment. And when you're in that environment, you're then your brain is completely brainwashed. So you don't remember you're in a simulation. And then you're catapulted back to the moment of your birth within the simulation and you start your life again. And my argument is, how would you know? How would you know you were in a simulation? Because you you couldn't tell. There is no way you could tell. It would be a virtual reality symbol of this and indeed how do we know that we're not in simulation now we don't i'm very interested in for instance a phenomenon called false awakenings and i know people who have woken up thought they've woken up got up gone to the gone to the the washroom cleaned their teeth and woken up again then they wake up again and they go downstairs have their breakfast and then they wake up again one guy contacted me and he'd got he had eight of these and he got to the middle of the afternoon And he noticed as he was looking outside, the sky was dark and he woke up again. And as he said to me, he said, how do I know that that last waking up, I woke up? And again, you don't know. And it's getting people to think differently. And this is what I try to do in my books. I try to say, look, just look at it slightly differently. Realize that you're suffering from what I call electromagnetic chauvinism. The idea (laughs) that you believe there's a one-to-one relationship between what you are perceiving and what the external world is, you know, and you know, there isn't, there's no color red out there. There's no color green. They're just, they're just states of electromagnetic radiation 
and vibrationary states of electromagnetic radiation that your brain interprets as being green. But the, there is no green. There is no anything out there. In fact, you know, as I say in the book, everything around you from the chair you're sitting on is 99.9999999996 empty space. In fact, when um, uh, Rutherford discovered the atom, when he discovered the nucleus of the atom way back when, the next morning when he woke up, he realized that the, the atom that made up, the atoms that make up were, were mostly empty space. And he was terrified of falling through the floor. <laughs> and the, of course, the only re and people say, but why don't you fall through the floor? And I say, you don't fall through the floor because there's something called electrostatic repulsion. And that is basically that at the end of each atom, there are electrons whizzing round, and there's a nucleus in the middle and the electrons are negatively charged like a negative magnet. The, the atoms in your finger, the atoms there also have electrons that are negatively charged. So when you touch a table or touch somebody else, what is actually happening is a negative energy is, is coming to with another negative energy. And we know that like energies repulse. And that's with everything you perceive. Every single thing you when you feel you touch your wife or your lover, you're not. You're feeling the electrostatic repulsion. Mm. You never touch anything. And when you get there, you start to start thinking profoundly Gnostic because then you're going, well, woo, what is really going on? <laughs> yeah, and you'll like this, but are you aware that uh, there's a, they're doing a book, a movie, a big, a big Hollywood movie, and it's going to be based on Phil K. Dick's sister, What If She Had Lived, her twin, oh, and right. Charlie Ther Theron is going to be playing her. So wow. it, what a mind... Uh, what a mind bender. That is very interesting, isn't it? You know, because yeah. in the book I argue, you know, that effectively the death of Jane was such a profound problem to Phil that he talked about it all the time. And this is why he was most of his life looking for what he called the brown eyed girl. Yeah. And th this was always the symbolism of Jane. And to know that there was a mountain, a hillside somewhere in Colorado that had your grave with a little bit waiting for you to die, to be buried with your sister. You know, what kind of plays with your mind there, you know? Um, so yeah, very, very interesting. So it's an it's almost like an alternate universe. Scenario. Yeah, what if she live? And I wonder who's going to, they haven't cast Philip K. Dick, but you know, I heard they had, I oh, heard really? they had, and it's quite a famous actor, but I can't remember for the life of me who it is off the top of my head. Because of course, this is almost a reworking, isn't it? Of the man in the high castle. Right, you know, the alternative right. future yeah. in that, you know, Mr. Tagamoto yeah. and his, his slip under the Embracado uh, flyover in Los Angeles, you know. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Hopefully the Walter White guy will play him since he helped produce the, the Philip K. Dick series on Amazon. And yeah, you mentioned the Gnostics and it, as I say, um, well, you've always been a big supporter of the Gnostics, not because of you're a fanboy, because you said the data that they followed is right. They didn't have the mm -hmm. science, but yeah, I mean, as I say here, in the West, <clears throat> you had uh, Plato gives us the allegory of the cave, the first uh, simulation holograph kind of theory, but then the Gnostics come and they really weaponize, you know, the idea that we are in a simu simulation. We live in the Kenoma. It's all empty. There are these programmers. They're not that are coding our very reality for this weird game called uh, the material world. And then 
they're rejected and everybody in the west theologically was like you're insane but you feel that finally things are catching up to what the Gnostics were warning 2,000 years ago. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I've long been fascinated by the whole myth of Plato's cave. And indeed, you probably know we did an event back mm -hmm. in 2019 here in the UK where we reproduced Plato's cave. And uh, breaking news, I'm working closely. A couple of my books have just come out in Greek. And I'm working with my Greek uh, editor, or Greek publisher, the guy that owns the publishing house in Athens. And I, I've done some research and I've discovered the location of where Plato's cave was thought to be by an American academic in 1901. And it's called the Cave of Vari, which is in um, near Athens. It's, it's in the huge hillside um, wow. uh, outside Athens. And if we can get access there, the plan is that we will reproduce Plato's cave. And get this, a group of friends of mine who are profound Gnostics, by the way, and very much into DMT, they're filmmakers. And they they are the guys, or well, one of the guys is one of the guys that's responsible for the, um, you know, the Life on Earth TV series. You know, mm -hmm. the guys that do the, the drone filming, he's one of them. And he's got these oh, wow. really expensive drones. And the plan is, if we can get to get this, this is going to be superb. We're going to have a drone taking off from the Parthenon, the Acropolis, flying out to sea, flying out over the, the Saronic Gulf Islands, back in over Cape Sunion, into going out to sea again, then coming in, flying straight into the cave with me standing there wearing purple robes going, welcome Love to the cave. And if we can do that, it's going to be extraordinary because people need to realise, you know, what Plato was saying here, as, as you guys know, and maybe your listeners know, or your watchers know, the watchers, there's an interesting watcher, Gnostic yeah. term in itself, the Book of Enoch. Um, but the idea that um, that what what we think is real isn't. And he used these wonderful analogies of the prisoner escaping and finding the really reality behind it and coming back into the cave and turning around to his fellow prisoners who've lived all their lives looking at the back wall of the cave, seeing shadows that they thought were real. And he turns around and he says, they're not. You know, there's a big world out there. There's a world behind the world. As you say, you know, in your phraseology, you know, the God behind God, the world behind the God, the, the pleroma. And we're trapped in this kenoma. You know, there's this fullness out there and we're trapped in the emptiness and they all don't believe him. They think he's insane. And this happens throughout history. There are the people who cannot communicate what they've seen because we don't take them seriously. And in my book, Opening the Doors of Perception, I, I discuss these individuals and I do the neurological correlates of why, why it happens within the brain and how the doors of perception are opened by them. And these people are people like temporal lobe epileptics, people who experience Alzheimer's disease, people who experience autism, Gershwin syndrome, people who experience general hallucinations, you know, mm. classic migraine. They're all on what I call my hooks, the spectrum. And the doors of perception are open more and more. And they see the world as it really is, the holographic nature of the pixelation of space which people like Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in Canada is looking for as we speak. You know, this is not this is not science fiction. This is the fact that most of people involved in the world at the moment, their knowledge of science is rooted in the science of the 1890s. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as uh, somebody who you quote who I like too, Donald Hoffman says, space yeah. and time has failed. Materialize, the material paradigm is officially dead. And yeah. science is saying that the data 
yeah. confirms it. All that's, the work you've done. Yeah. That's what the data is telling us. The data is telling us that this is not what it seems, but it's been telling us this ever since Max Planck in 1900 stood up and talked about the, the quanta. You know, and, you know, and then Einstein in 1905 and then back into the 1920s with Schrodinger and, and Max Born and people like that. All of these individuals were discussing. And of course, people never talk about the fact that an awful lot of these early quantum physicists became incredibly mystical when they got they were, older. Oh, they were you know, inspired by they had visions. Had a, yeah. You know, and particularly, particularly uh, Wolfgang Pauli, you know, working with Jung on synchronicity. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they never talk about this. Because there is a vested interest, and you can see why, that people need to believe that this is absolutely real and it's solid and, you know, there's nothing really to worry about it. We've got it all under control. Whereas the reality, <laughs> they haven't got a clue. They don't understand. You know, 94% of the universe is missing. You know, it's, you know it's, it's extraordinary that people just don't even know this, you know, that there's there's dark matter and dark energy. It's the only way we can understand how galaxies, Vera Rubens' work, that galaxies evolve, revolve. They're impossible. They shouldn't revolve that way, but they do, you know. But we just pretend it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's a pity about scientism because you mentioned Wolfgang Pauli. He also was telekinetic. He would go into his lab and things would fly off the <laughs> shelves and break. And even if he was walking outside, people's beakers would break. And they say the only reason he was not, he, he won the Nobel Prize. Einstein said he was the smartest man in the history, but he wasn't invited to the Manhattan Project because they were afraid he was going to blow, you know, <laughs> telekinetic you know, powers would blow you know, the whole a, thing off. Do you know, there's a famous story where uh, there were a group of researchers, I think somewhere in southern Germany or maybe Switzerland, I don't know, but they were in their lab and nothing would work. And somebody jokingly said, Wolfgang Pauli must be around somewhere. And they contacted him and he said, you're not going to believe this. I was going through your town on the train when it <laughs> happened. You know, so and of course, the fascinating thing about Wolfgang Cowley, he was preoccupied with a particular number. And I'm trying to remember what it was, like 138 or something. And he was all through his life. He was preoccupied with this number and he talked about it all the time and he wrote about it. And then he realized the symbolism of the number because his daemon had been telling him all his life. It was wow. the room he went into in the hospice where he died. And it was his daemon saying to him. You know, this is going to be the last image you're going to have in this life rerun is going to be being in this room 138. You know, again, oh. it's something that is little known that, but it, it's extraordinary. extraordinary. Yeah, and these geniuses, I mean, Neil Bohr's and all that, they were geniuses not despite their mystical tendency and wanting to know God, but because of it. I think they were tapping mm -hmm. into new worlds, but they... We've lost that. I mean, don't you think, Anthony? We have. We, we have. There's this great denial at the moment. I mean, for instance, there's a very, very famous British scientist called Brian Cox. And a few years ago, Brian wrote a book with a guy called uh, Jeff Forshaw. Now, I know Jeff. I did an event with Jeff Forshaw. Jeff Forshaw was Brian Cox's PhD tutor at Manchester mm. University. And Jeff and I were having coffee once when we were going to be doing this event together. And he just turns around to me out the blue and he just says, of course, we now know that every electron in the universe knows the location of every other electron. This is the top physicist. And then they come out with a book together. And the subtitle of the book was everything that can happen will happen, which, of course, is logical. Yeah. You know, we know this from the top down hypothesis of um, of Hertog and Hawking. 
You know, Stephen Hawking's last ever paper was talking about the top-down hypothesis. We have this amazing theory that I talk about in the book by a guy called John Kramer called the transactional analysis of quantum physics. And this is the fact that he argues there are information waves or electromagnetic waves going forwards in time and ones going backwards in time. Okay, and I, I think I think I'm the only person that's pointed this out, that if the present moment is the interface between retarded waves and advanced waves, as they're called, and the interface is the present moment, what do you get when you put two wave function, two waves together? You get an interference pattern. It's a bloody hologram. This is the point, you know, I make in the book that the present moment is a hologram and it's created by advanced and retarded waves. You know, and I think I may be wrong, but I think I'm the only person on the planet that spotted this. You know, oh. you know, now I don't know whether I'm putting two and two together and it doesn't work properly. But we know from uh, the work of people like Alan Guth and various other individuals and Juan Maldacana and um, various other individuals, uh, Jacob Beckenstein. All these guys have been working on the idea of the holographic universe, the holographic principle that mm. the universe is holographic. It's a two-dimensional projection. It's a two, yeah, it's a two-dimensional projection from the inside edge of the expanding universe. And the and it, it was really fascinating. They did this incredible calculation where they decided how many bits of information would be needed to describe the universe as we know it. They then calculated the idea, like for 13.8 billion years, the universe has been expanding outwards. It's like we're sitting in the inside of an expanding balloon. Now, imagine the inside of that expanding balloon. The smallest part of, of, of area you can get is called the Planck square, named after Max Planck. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly tiny. They, argue, they said, just imagine that each Planck square contains one bit of information. The amount of information needed to describe the universe digitally is exactly the same figure as the amount of Planck squares on the outside edge of the expanding universe. Wow. Now, that's got to be significant. What's that telling us? You know, very intriguing. And that's taken from an I'm taking that verbatim from an article that was published in Scientific American in about 2005. Scientific American, not Wacko Weekly, you know, <laughs> real deal, you know. Ooh, my uh, my male cat's nipples are getting hard with all this information. He must be out there in the sun. Just yeah, it's it's incredible, and I love the work you do. Uh, I don't even know. I wrote so many notes, Anthony. Again, you can come at your book through a hundred different ways. Again, quantum physics, near death experiences, altered states. Your sec, obviously, um, part of your section on the mystics was wonderful, from the Tibetan Buddhists to all those. You come always come up with some great insights, like uh, you talk about how the Ismailis kind of sneak in Sophia by making the act of creation in Arabic a female form. I mean, there's good, yeah. there's just good stuff all over your book, which and I learned a lot. So, um, so I want to I want to throw it to Vance. Vance, do you have a question for Anthony? Anything you're interested in or the audience has? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'll start with an audience question, so I won't be selfish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a good one to ex expose more more of the uh, the, the uh, theories and the ideas here. If nothing, silent nerd said, if nothing is real, then your brain isn't. So, what are you using to think the theory in the first place? All right, yeah, excellent question. Descartes, excellent question. are we going with Descartes? The the brain yeah, in the vat. Uh, <laughs> ergo sum. Yeah, it's 
it's the the idea that um, if nothing is real, what's doing the thinking? What is the what is the inner me? Well, of course, there are the people called eliminative materialists like the Churchlands and Daniel Dennett will argue there isn't any you. There isn't right. any anything inside of you. Who the hell Daniel Dennett thinks spends his royalties from his books like Consciousness Explained <laughs> is beyond my comprehension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, you know, Dennett has argued and various other people, we are fooling ourselves. Now, as I've argued in some of my previous books, you can only you can only fool something that's aware. You can't fool a stone. You can only fool something who's aware of the fact it's being fooled yeah. and falls for your your lies or whatever, but it's still got to be sentient in some way. So the question is, where does sentience come from? Where, as I said in one of my books, in terms of the structure of the brain, the brain, when it comes down to it, is made up of molecules and atoms, which in turn are made up of six quarks and electrons. That's it. That's it. Six quarks and electrons. These all come together in some kind of magical way get mixed up with chemicals in the brain and fields in the brain. And at some point, pow, Anthony Peake appears. Thinking, realizing, perceiving. How does that happen? It's called, as David Chalmers calls it, the hard problem of science. We have no idea how that happens. And I've argued, is it just the addition of one molecule? Is it suddenly that one molecule pops in and suddenly, bang, we're conscious? Or is it a slow development but to me, you can, you're, you're either conscious or you're unconscious. There's no kind of halfway point in terms of Q, the, 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 the consciousness inside. So we need to take it back a bit further. We need to go back to the belief systems of people like uh, the Vedantists and various other people. And the Vedantists argued that everything is a singularity. Hmm. There is just one something. It's not, as it's Ayadavata, it's non-dual. The idea is there isn't spirit and physical bodies. There is just one thing. And that one thing, I would argue, is information. But what they would argue is spirit. And there is just one spirit. I call it in my book, I call it the Godemon, ultimately. And we are emanations of that. Just like in, in, in Gnosticism, everything's emanations of Sophia. It's the same kind of argument that, that, that we are as 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 Bill Hicks said, you know, we are just a, a singular consciousness experiencing itself subjectively because we have become individuated and we sense that we are, we have ego. But when we move outside of this, the ego changes. And I argue that the Edelon, which is the lower part of the self, has it has ego. Then you have the daemon, which is the universal self, your self that's lived many lives before. Then higher than that is the is the uh, uber daemon, which is the collective unconscious of humanity, which I would argue is the equivalent of the Jungian collective unconscious. Then you move to the higher level, which is the godemon, which is the what the, the Kabbalists would call the or ein sof. Mm -hmm. What I think it's Barzak, is it that it's in, in, in Sufism? But the idea that this singular consciousness who's whistling away in the background somewhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Archon fake CIA birds. Yeah. It's a CIA bird. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We don't like what we're talking about. Yeah, it's going to squawk us down now. <laughs> so, so ultimately, the, the, there is no you inside. It's an illusion that you are inside. You're not inside anywhere. 
you are perceiving you are you are the perceived and the perceiver and in the book i i even do the science of how consciousness creates external reality not or, or how it seems to do not only how it creates external reality but how it creates objects that supposedly existed just after the big bang there's something called the john wheeler delayed choice experiment which uses something called the twin slit experiment using light waves coming from a quasar and he argues that it's ex the, the wave function of light coming from a quasar is collapsed by the act of observation of somebody on Earth now, even though wow. that quasar has not existed for billions of years. So clearly, time is an illusion. And, you know, in my book, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the, uh, the Labyrinth of Time, I, I argue this. So it's much more complex than just saying, what's my brain processing? Like everything else, Space is expanding. Okay, this is a very important point. Somebody posted recently that some of the photographs that are coming from the, the James Webb telescope, right. they pointed out and they said, the universe is only 13.5678 billion years old. How is it we are seeing objects that are 20 million, 30 million years away, light years away? And the answer is that space is expanding. And not only is space expanding, but space can expand faster than the speed of light. In the first milliseconds of the Big Bang, the theory tells us there was a period of super expansion where the universe expanded hundreds of times faster than the speed of light. That's theoretically a principle, but it also means that space is expanding everywhere. It's expanding in out of space, but it's expanding in inner space. It's expanding in your mind. And the only reason we don't notice this expansion is everything's expanding with us. So we don't see it. We don't notice it and we don't perceive it. But this, again, is the latest research in science. So there is no out there. There is no in here. It's far more interesting than that. Far more interesting. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Yeah, fascinating. I mean, it was Plotinus who said, uh, our soul is not within us. We are within the soul. It's excreting us. And I'm sure you've heard of uh, philosopher Bernardo Castro's ideas that yeah. to solve the conscious, hard consciousness problem, you got to flip it. It's consciousness that's creating matter in us and everything, not the other way around. So Yeah, it's so important to make that realization. You know, you know the evidence is pointing directly. I and mean, of course, people will argue, no, you're confusing it. The, the wave function is collapsed by the, the measurement. But as people like John Wheeler have argued and people like um, uh, Wigner, the Hungarian physicist, you know, you've got to have somebody witnessing it. You know, a measurement is not a measurement unless somebody thinks about it being a measurement. You know, that's not how it works. Um, so there's a feedback mechanism going on here. And my work and what I'm trying to do is to understand it. Because, again, you know, as a final point here, you know, subatomic particles get entangled. You put two subatomic particles in the same quantum state, spin them off in different directions. They instantaneously communicate. This is not science fiction. This is science fact. But most people are completely unaware of this. There's a guy called Anton Zeilinger at the University of Vienna that's been doing this work for decades. And the things he's discovering are extraordinary, you know, but nobody knows about them. <laughs> Lord have mercy. What do you think, Vance? Do you have a question yourself? Well, uh, one, one thing I, I'll say is uh, I came up with something uh, some years ago um, called the concept of the pyramid in the eye. You've heard of the eye and the pyramid, the all-seeing yeah. eye. Well, I, I reversed that and I said, well, because I believed consciousness was primary and the material world was instantiated by consciousness, uh, that's how it gets reversed. The, the, the pyramid is in the eye. And then I came across in a mineral store a quartz sphere that was, you know, um, you know, ground into a sphere. And you know how you can have little things inside quartz that you can see, you know, little... Um, flaws and if you hold it just the right way you can see pyramids inside oh there's a pyramid on the screen you can see pyramids inside this round thing is that there it is it's a physical sign about you know the uh, the pyramid in the eye so i i'm you know i'm i'm one that uh, really kind of lives this you know i've had mystical experiences when i was 17 years old that there was only one consciousness and that it was like an iceberg that stuck up you know, from the ocean in multiple places. And it's paradoxical, but uh, that's the way it is. And there's nothing that says that our logic, our serial logic, which, you know, Gödel's theorem says logic is, is uh, it does not completely describe any system. It's, no. uh, you know, so, so um, you know, people that are in love with logic and say it's the be and all end all, well, it only takes you so far. Yeah, Gogol's uh, incompleteness theorem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've gone through two versions of that in college because <laughs> I, I took graduate courses in in uh, higher math, recursive function theory, and you know, automata theory. But uh, it, it recursive. Was... Theory, I, I need to talk to you at some stage because I'm fascinated by recursion. Do you know? Remember that wonderful book written by Douglas Douglas Hofstadter, Gödel, Escher, Bach. Yes, yes. You know that was the first introduction I had to recursion. And I thought this is this is important. This is significant. This means, you know, that everything rolls round onto itself and comes back to itself. And it's the idea, isn't it? Like you take a, 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 a holographic image and you break it up into its component parts. You don't get like bits of a jigsaw puzzle. You get the denuded image of the full image in the part of the 
the, and it's again the idea of ev the whole contains the parts and the parts yeah. contain the whole. It's very fractals. much David Bohm, isn't it? Yeah, fractals. You know, um, yeah, it's you fractals, know, isn't it? It's Mandel Mandelbrot sets. Exactly. You know, you know these things are extraordinary, and it, I, what I find amazing is that it's been pointed out. It is anybody that's got any kind of attention of putting together all these things. It's in plain sight, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, it's as if we are preoccupied with. It's as if it's a kind of a magic trick that somebody's waving their hand over there, and we're looking at the hand, but the real stuff is over here, you know, right. and we're not looking at it, you know. And there's little guys like me coming along and going, and like you, you know, and going saying, "There's more to this." And what happens? We get categorised as being wackos, and we get categorised as being weirdos and everything else, you know. And we're dangerous, and we shouldn't be allowed out there because we we have nipples and things, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> What do they say? What do they say? What's that famous thing? See nipples and die? Oh no, that's Naples, isn't it? <laughs> Naples, yeah, yeah, you got the wrong one. Yeah, I'd rather have Naples. Yeah, or it's Philip K. Dick. Yeah, we are in the hands of a dangerous magician, and he's pointing out. That's a question I had for you, Anthony. Uh, of your book again, you revisit the wonderful your wonder hypothesis of the daemon. You bring more stuff like you like you just mentioned too, but. I'm, are you aware of the work of individuals like uh, Paul Levy on Wittico or Jerry Marzinski or John Lamlash? Oh, great. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, and, great guy. Uh, uh, they talk about mind parasites and kind of evil demons. What's your stance on that? Well, funnily enough, one of the uh, the work, things I'm working on is, is developing my daemon theory, my daemon Adelon theory. And I mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the go daemon and the, the uber daemon. But also I was discussing with friends of mine really recently as well, we've been discussing this, of the motivations of our daemons. And I've come up with the concept of the cacodemon and the kalos demon. And the idea that the, the daemon, our daemons are no more morally, they're as morally ambiguous as we are. You know, as I've argued in the past, Hitler's daemon kicked in the in the in the in the in the in the Stauffenberg plot, Hitler's daemon kicked the bomb behind the pillar to allow Hitler to survive, to extend the war. Oh, now, wow. surely, if it was a good daemon, he would he would have made sure that Hitler would have died so he could go back to the start right. to, to make sure Hitler didn't do that and became a painter and was quite happy with his life, you know. But that's not how it worked. He deliberately did that. And I think it's because they are just still extrapolations of ourselves. And, of course, you know in my book, The Hidden Universe, mm -hmm. I'm developing this concept of egregores. And the concept of the egregorial, you know, and that's why I mentioned earlier on the Book of Enoch the and the idea of the watchers, the egregoris, and the idea that there is a feedback mechanism between our anticipations of external reality and how these entities, whatever they are, use our anticipations of them to draw themselves into this reality. And again, Paul Eno, who's an associate of mine that you may know, Paul, um, he, he, he lives in New England, in Rhode Island. And he's been doing work on this. And I argue that these things are like the jinn. You know, you know, in, in Islamic belief systems, I think it was the idea that angels were made out of fire. Mm -hmm. uh, human beings were made out of soil or mud. And the jinn were made out of smokeless fire. Mm -hmm. Now, that intrigues me. Smokeless fire. That sounds to me like plasma. Plasma. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it? So if the jinn are made of plasma... And there's a direct relationship between our anticipations and plasma can be drawn into this reality from, I don't know, the zero point field. Could it be from the quantum vacuum? Who knows? But these creatures then use our anticipations 
to become something, to become real. You know, like uh, Alexander Neal, the, the, the famous uh, Belgian lady that was in Tibet in the 1920s and 1930s. They created a tulpa. Her and her little group of friends created a little monk. Right. And initially it was it was literally like a machine. It, it, it reacted to them in a positive way. And then it developed its own personality and became evil. And they had to destroy it. They had to, they had to work on destroying it. So I think, and I, this is the area I'm now working into. And again, I'm interested here in the Joe Fisher concept of the hungry ghosts and the idea that these things come in and they manipulate us. They lie to us. And they play with us. So when people say they're talking to spirits, what are they really talking to? These spirits seem to play with us. You know, things like the skull experiment. What were the entities they were talking to in the skull experiment? Because they seem to be taking, extracting the Michael here. Right. In terms, of, And how is it sometimes, you know, people will have direct communication with these entities and they will place somebody in a point where they are made look like a fool and an idiot. And I believe this is what's happening with the UFO phenomenon. I think that UFOs are part of this phenomenon. There's the game, Jacques Vallée's arguments about mm. it all, you know, and uh, Paul, there's a, um, a, a French Canadian guy that's doing work on this as well. The idea is it's like a, a massive, it's like Loki. It's this massive yeah. game that's being played with us. The trickster. And, yeah. The area I want to be going with my work. John Keel also <laughs> talked about Charles Ford. Yeah, they're ultra terrestrials. They're tricksters and they have a different morality. I mean, like you said, uh uh Jung himself said that the unconscious will kill us or get rid of us if we're not doing our job on earth, whatever the job is. It has yeah. its own morality and mission, and Anthony's ego and my ego or Vance's ego is irrelevant. And then with the gin. The the Arabs always said that you had to memorize the Quran because the jinn can travel back in time and change the Quran, like worship Ooh, demons. Satanic and you think, now I'm like, well, with Anthony Peake's work, yeah, very logical. These Arabs were very logical because these beings, I'm sure, can go back in time and forward everything. And this is why I believe, well, I don't believe, I mean, we know, we, we joke about this, but, you know, we do get attacked a lot by seemingly archons that seem to make things go down as i say three times last week things went down and i mentioned you and i said my friend miguel connor we had this continually when we were doing show yeah every time All now time. I, I actually do some rituals and it's working it seems to be it seems to be keep the archons Tony's on the show i'm gonna do some <laughs> nag hamadi vowel magic or something <laughs> oh cool great and uh, the other question, too, I had for you, I love the Mandela effect because as I get older and I forget things, I can blame everything on the Mandela effect. <laughs> oh, I, I forgot to pay this bill. Must have been the Mandela effect change or I, I left it. the Mandela effect. But how do you, how does your work explain the past changing or retrocausation? I mean, well, I believe the past can be changed easily and it is always changing i think the I, arabs were right remember this stuff because the jinn will change it i initially was quite you know i was very much as you know I'm, I'm quite grounded in and i'm quite a skeptic and i have a reputation for being a skeptic so i i tend to apply the um uh uh marcello truzzi idea of ex, uh, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs mm -hmm. and the mandela effect I thought it's just it's just memory. It's just bad memory. It's got to be you're just not remembering things um, until somebody pointed out to me and said, OK, if you're so sure of this, 
what happened in the James Bond film when Jaws met the little girl and they smiled at each other. And I said, they smiled at each other and because Jaws had Jaws and the little girl had a brace on her teeth and they smiled at each other and they fell in love. Yeah. Do you know that never happened? That Fuck. never, ever happened. Get out of here. Seriously. I remember being so happy for them as a kid. Like, exactly. Oh, but it never happened. Cutest couple. You know, th th it's not what happens. And you go, wow. And then you you, you, you think of things, and I, I somebody else pointed out to me, said, the little guy in Monopoly, does he have a monocle? Well, yes, he does. Of course he does. Of course. And, he doesn't, <laughs> and he's never had a monocle. And then, my, and then my sort of... I think the other day, quickly, my wife was complaining. She's like, uh, C-3PO has a silver leg in Return of the Jedi, but you don't f see it anywhere in toys or anything. What happened? That's yeah. It's it's intriguing. Do I still do I still do I think the Mandela effect is still probably poor memory as well? It probably is, but there is more to it. And you know, do I believe that it's CERN changing the universe? Of course I don't. You know, that sort of nonsense. But <laughs> there does one. seem to be something faulty with memory. Now we all we all have cryptomnesia. We all redefine, you know, in my first book, I got a whole section on memory and how memory functions. And you know, we do re-embroider the past in many ways we know that there are things we believe that happened that never did happen um but even though we pre precisely remember them but i'm open to persuasion on this and those those two things and a number of other things have made me think no there's more to this and i'm an, a skeptic until somebody proves to me that i'm wrong and i think that whole thing with jaws it seems that i'm wrong um and I don't understand it. I don't understand it. So, so yes, you see the past is set. The past, and the past isn't. Be... But then again, if we do the John Kramer argument mm -hmm. that you have advanced and retarded waves and one of them are going backwards in time, that means backwards communication in time. You know, and re there's no reason why time should go in either direction. It's completely yeah. arbitrary. It's just like, for instance, there's no reason why there are three dimensions of space and one and time. Why are there only three? We think in, 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 in string theory, they're what, 12 or 13? You know, so th there are all these things that people just take for granted without ever thinking about, well, but why is there? In fact, as I used an argument recently, why is there nothing? Why is there anything rather than nothing? Surely it's much easier to have nothing than anything. And then counter-argument, you know, the idea of the laws of thermodynamics, that everything is rolling down to entropy, that everything is going for a state of order to disorder, except evolution, who's going the other way, and genetics, who's going the complete opposite way. You know, that again doesn't make sense to me. You know, it, there are things that we can't think of, you know, and things that are, are intriguing. And these are areas that I really am keen to start digging into in the few remaining years I have. Yeah, I think we project our own human nature onto the rest of the universe, and it's not valid. You know, we, we think that everything is just a reflection of our normal everyday human minds. But, uh, um, for example, the whole thing with time, you know, I think, you know, we, we always in, uh, imagine that time is just this one thing that starts at the start and just keeps on going in a single line. But, you know, I think every consciousness, um, seemingly individual consciousness, is a time.
and, mm. and, and that it's, it's like a record, you know, where, where the needle goes on the record and the needle is, you know, the record's turning underneath the needle, but you can have five needles on the same record, you know, yeah. you can have a multidimensional record. It's the, it's the analogy, you know, Philip K. Dick's analogy of orthogonal time, you know, the idea of a time that runs yeah. at, at right angle to this time. And again, the, the, the writer that was profoundly influenced me in my own thinking of time was J.W. Dunn, the, uh, the, the Irish um, aeronautical engineer who wrote in 1927 or 28 a book called An Experiment with Time. But people forget he also wrote a book called Serial Time. And in it, it's really fascinating what he argues. You remember um, uh, Marcus Aurelius said, time is a river. But time, time flows like a river, but we have no reference point for time. We know that a river is flowing because we can see the riverbanks and you can see the river flowing. Imagine you take away the riverbanks. You've just got a river and you've got no way of knowing which direction it's flowing or even if it's flowing at all. So what J.W. Dunn said was that in order for us to understand time's flow, there has to be another time that you measure this time by. And he called that time too. <laughs> But then, interestingly enough, um, Vance, as you said, he suggested that there is a part of our consciousness that resides in time two. And there's another part of our consciousness that resides in time three, because, of course, time two needs time three. Now, of course, that's an infinite regress that suggests ultimately an infinite regress. But nevertheless, his points were very, very valid because he argued this is how you can explain precognitive dreaming. Because he argued that we can attune into uh, our consciousness in time too in dreams. And of course, because what um, is known as the specious present, the specious present is the kind of present that we hold in our mind, that bit of the past and the bit of the future that comes together to give us the present moment. Now, um, I can't remember, it was the, the American um, philosopher scientist, I can't remember his name now, that came up with the concept of the specious present. Um, but the idea is that the specious present for somebody in time two is longer. So it's broader. So in other words, you're, you're, you're attuning into your immediate past as the present and your immediate future. And of course, that's how precognition may work. And it's also how it could be that deja vu works. Of course, you will know, um, Miguel, that my hypothesis of deja vu is different to that. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you can see how that model may work. So I think, Vance, your, your, your point is an incredibly valid one there. And again, it's something we need to start thinking about more because in my book, The Labyrinth of Time, I discuss in detail, you know, as St. Augustine said, when I don't think about time, I think I can understand it. I just know what it is until I start focusing in on it. And then it makes no sense to me. And I did yeah. that with my book, The Labyrinth of Time, 380 pages. I still had no bloody idea what time was after 380 pages. <laughs> I've no idea. Yeah. My, my big question is, why is our consciousness stuck in this present moment? You know, I mean, the ancients and everybody have, have spent so much time trying to ascend and you know, astral project or do whatever it is to have your consciousness be free. But we seem to be trapped in this prison. And that that's one of the primal questions in my mind. Uh, otherwise, that you know, the mystical reality could be demonstrated to anybody. I could like flip over into somebody else and combine our, our memories, and we could see that you know mm -hmm. we're not really separate and, and that type of thing. But we seem to be stuck. 
Well, there yeah, seems yeah. to be evidence, doesn't there, you know, that we can, under some circumstances, you know, from astral travel to out-of-body experiences. And again, I wrote a book called The Out-of-Body Experience. I'm very original. Um, and, you know, the, the out-of-body experience is an ID, you know, what is taking place there. Now, my initial position was very profoundly that it's, it's, it's a projection of our internal anticipations of what three-dimensional reality should be like. Um, and that's why things are strange when we're in an out-of-body experience. However, people have come to me and have proven to me beyond all shadow of a doubt that um, out-of-body experiences are not only real, but out-of-body experiences are experienced in three-dimensional space. Um, there is an associate of mine called Graham Nichols who has had a series of out-of-body experiences that are absolutely extraordinary. He even has had precognitive out-of-body experiences where he's been out of his body and perceived the future. Wow. Now, now, get this. This is extraordinary. 1999, December 19, no, late November 1999, Graham is doing a lecturing course. Or he's doing his lecturing to a group of people. He's got about eight or nine people in a room talking to them about things. He suddenly feels himself, his legs buckle, he falls to the floor, and he finds himself somewhere else completely. Okay. And he's looking around. And he's thinking, oh, God, where am I? And he starts walking forward. And then he steps out of that reality into another reality. And he's standing on the corner of Wardour Street and Old Compton Street in Soho in London. He said he felt somebody run past him. So he felt the displacement of the air as he ran past. And he walked, run, looked down the street to see an explosion take place halfway down the street and people coming out covered in blood and the screams and police sirens and alarms going off. While this is happening, he hears voices going, Graham, Graham, are you OK? And it's the people in the lecture theatre. And he finds himself rising up and he comes to. And the first thing he says to these nine people is there's going to be a terrorist attack in London in a specific location. Five days later. There's a terrorist bomb in exactly the location Graham predicted. Wow. Absolutely, exactly the location in that street. It was a pub called the Admiral Duncan. It was a gay bar and somebody went in with a nail bomb. And I think four people were killed. Now, there's only two solutions to this problem that skeptics can go to. They're all lying. Or it was just chance. Now, if Graham had said there's going to be a nail, there's going to be a bomb in London, yeah, I could probably live with that. Yeah. A bomb in Soho, it's narrowing it down. A bomb in a specific location? Don't think so. This is not Occam's razor. This is not applying Occam's razor. This is being in denial. And he argues, and this is of profound importance, and this has been backed up by friends of mine who have out-of-body experiences. When you're having a precognitive out-of-body experience, everything's tinged blue. And we oh, don't really? know why. Graham oh, and I are working on this. It seems to move towards the blue end of the spectrum. And Graham argues that you need to get him on the show. He's an extraordinary guy. Would love to. And, you know, I, I met up with him last week. We had we had we met up in London you know, because we're thinking of trying to create a new organization in the UK to explore these things in a more scientific way. But it's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, but Graham's had lots of other experiences like this. And he's very, very scientific. That's the thing about Graham. He has these experiences and he wants answers to them. He doesn't just say like other people say, oh, I get out of my body and it's really great and I can train <laughs> you to do it and you pay me 100 quid and I'll give you a course on how to get out of your body. Graham does far more than this. You know, he does the research and he's, he's a 
fascinating guy. Again, if you go on YouTube and just put up Anthony Peake, Graham Nichols, you'll see a video of me interviewing Graham at the very spot that he had the, the experience, the spot of the experience he saw. Incredible stuff. Well, I know we're a little over an hour, Anthony. I don't know if you have to go, uh, if you no, have time no, for no, a few I've got, I've got till half past, so I've got Okay, good, 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 good. Yeah, because uh, I can't wait for you to go have dinner with your wife and say, did you know She's that cooking male, downstairs male cats have nipples and gin can change the Quran? She'll be like, that's it. Um, that's it. No, she's, down, she's downstairs having her gin at the moment. I'm oh, not so having she'll be relaxed for your... <laughs> hey, what would you... Go ahead. <laughs> the magic of gin. Hmm. <laughs> gin, gin, and gin. Uh, what would you say? Uh, what um, What would you say is some of the most important uh, experiments you want to give the audience, or most remarkable? You've already given plenty. I, I was going to ask you about the. I always call it the Bohemian IMAX, like you yeah. see Queen singing, but it's Bohemian IMAX. It's That's Bohemian. a very important idea that is you've kept it alive through all these decades. Yeah, the Bohemian IMAX is my counter counter to uh, Daniel Dennett's um, Cartesian theatre. In in his book Consciousness Explained, uh, the guy I was talking about, who's in denial about there being any inner consciousness at all, mm. um, he he has this incredibly hubristic book that he calls Consciousness Explained. He doesn't, but he says he does. Okay, um, but he has this thing he calls the multiple drafts theory. And again, it's to do with memory and how memory works. It's all very, very interesting. But the interesting thing is with um, his model, he, he, he disses the whole Cartesian idea of duality and the idea there is a little homunculus in our heads and it's sitting there in a little room and it's got speakers either side and it's got a TV screen in front of it and that's us. Because, of course, it is <laughs> regress because the little homunculus has to have a little man inside him doing the same. Right. Backwards and backwards and backwards. So it doesn't work. I agree with him totally on that. But the little, the, the, as, as it was Gilbert Ryle, wasn't it, that said the ghost in the machine, the idea there's a ghost in the machine. We are a machine and there's a ghost in there. I, I argue that, Ryle and and Dennett have got it wrong. It's not a Cartesian theater. It's a Bohemian IMAX. And by that, I, I refer to the work of probably the greatest, probably unknown or relatively unknown scientist that's ever lived, was definitely in the 20th century. And it's a guy called David Bohm. And David Bohm was an American scientist who fell foul of the McCarthy witch hunts in the 1950s and came over and worked originally in Israel. And then he came over to work at Birkbeck College in London. And he wanted to understand. He was very much. a. He wrote one of the definitive books on quantum mechanics, but he had problems with the Copenhagen interpretation, the idea of consciousness creating matter. And he wanted to take that back a bit further. And he wanted to find what Einstein called the hidden variables. Einstein saw quantum physics as being incomplete, that what was happening is we were seeing, and quantum physics tells us things, but at a deeper level, we go back to the more secure world of, of, um, of Newtonian physics, where things make sense again. And Einstein, for the last 30 years of his life, was arguing with Niels Bohr about it and bringing up thought experiments to try and disprove Niels Bohr's argument that, and that you know, and as, as Einstein once said, God doesn't pay, God right. doesn't play dice. And Niels Bohr turned around to Einstein and said, "Don't tell Einstein, don't tell God what to do." 
which is fantastically <laughs> a post. So Einstein thinks there's these hidden variables. Now, along comes David Bohm and says, maybe there are hidden variables. And Bohm's argument was very clever. He said, you know, I mentioned earlier on about the smallest bit of, of area you can have, which is the Planck, Planck square. Mm -hmm. Between what the Planck square is and the smallest thing we can possibly measure or be aware of, there are factors, about 14 or 15 factors of size, exponential factors of size, before you get to the smallest thing we know. And as Bohm argued, there's this whole unknown terra incognita of reality that we just don't know what's going on. We have no idea. And he argued that within that is something he called the hollow movement. And by this, he, he argued that subatomic particles know where to go because something called a pilot wave. And it teaches them. So in the twin slit experiment, without going to detail about the twin slit experiment, one of the problems has been how does the particles know when they're particles rather than waves were to locate themselves on the twin screen? Bohm would argue there are pilot waves that follow all subatomic particles and they guide them right rails so they know where to go. A brilliant idea. But he then came to the conclusion that, in fact, the reality we deal with is not the understanding of the physical reality we understand. The hollow movement is, in fact, a hologram. And everything we perceive is holographic in nature. He was so advanced in his ideas. Now, the weird thing was that um, he was then contacted by um, a young man who was the son of a guy called Carl Pribram. And Carl Pribram was um, a researcher and a neurologist, I think, at the University of Georgetown. And Pibram had been working on the idea that consciousness is holographic in nature and the brain works under holographic principles. The two of them got together and it was this magical meeting because there's this guy saying the universe is holographic and there's this other guy saying consciousness is holographic. Mm -hmm. So what was happening is we have a hologram processing a hologram. So this is where we get the unification of everything. This is where we go again, non-dual. And the idea is that this, this holographic model that, that Mandelkana and, 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 and people like that are now doing. By the way, it wasn't Alan Guth. Alan Guth was the guy that came up with the expansion theory. I was wrongly, I wrongly quoted, and I'm sure people will pick me up on that. But it's people like Mandelkana and, and, and people like that. So, so the idea is that there is this hollow movement, and it's all to do with how we perceive reality. And, he, and you know I said about the subatomic particles? The going in different directions and you do one to one, the other one, it reacts instantaneously. This was part of something called the Einstein Podolsky Rosen thought experiment from 1937, which again was Einstein trying to prove that quantum physics was nonsense and it made no logical <laughs> sense. But in 1965, a guy called John Bell mathematically proved that Einstein was wrong. And in 1981, a guy called Alain Aspect and Delabard and Roger in the University of Paris proved in physical experimentation that Einstein. Einstein was wrong. And this is all, all the stuff, again, that Bohm was arguing. But Bohm argued, missing the picture here, when we see two subatomic particles, we're not seeing two particles. They're, in fact, one particle that we are perceiving as two. And this is profoundly important because it means that everything is a unity. And the idea of distance, the idea of time, 
the idea of space are all illusions created by our mind to allow us to exist within this within the kenoma to use a gnostic term so his arguments were brilliant and i when i brought my arguments up i said we don't live in a cartesian theater we live in a bohemian imax where and it's similar to the difference between a theater and an imax where you know it's surrounding you the sounds around you but of course these days it's more of a bohemian virtual reality simulation but it's not a simulation wrong word it should we you should use the word instantation which one of my associates dr andrew gallimore who's a a, a neural neurophysiologist in japan uses the term and again he's somebody else you really have have to get on the show andrew is, is he's a force of nature if you think i'm animated you want to see him <laughs> you know <laughs> Ooh, that makes what sense. A ride. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a ride. And uh, so, where do you stand uh, on uh, eternal return? How has how have you tweeted? Guys, that? have I lost you? Are you there? Did, have the archons finally struck? Do I need to burn? Yes, more they anything? have. Uh, damn yeah, you're a bit choppy, guys. Where are you? We're here. We're here. We can see here. you. <laughs> we can see you. We're getting network. Uh, network is getting a little slow. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes, we can, we hear, can you. hear you. Can, can you, you hear, hear us? us? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's got to be on his side. Hey, you and I can hear each other. Well, <clears throat> you know. Right, the eternal return. By the way, you're. Yeah, the I think the archons have got us. Damn those archons. No, the archons have got us. Yeah, I'm here. I'm hearing your voice and my voice in my head, Vince. Yeah, me too. It's a delay. Yeah, it might be. I think maybe in the UK it's getting busier as it gets. Okay, you can hear me, but you can't see me. Yes, I can hear you, but I don't know whether we're at the same time. Can you hear us now? If I say one, one plus one, it goes two. If I say one plus one, say two. 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 I mean, no, no, two. <laughs> See, we've shifted into another reality, Miguel. Yeah. Where time is not working. No, well, a pity. Well, we did go a good uh, hour, almost hour and 20 minutes without the Archon striking. Hopefully he'll jump back on, or we'll just have to make the best with what we have. And uh, yeah, good good comments by the if audience. You guys can hear me. I've got. Four. I can hear you. Yes, but I think there's a time delay. Yes. <clears throat> good. Try ah, disconnecting well, and reconnecting. Uh, uh, okay, you are good. You're about five minutes behind me. <laughs> <Are you serious? laughs> Anthony, has, we're displaced in time. Yeah, I asked you the one and one equals two about five minutes ago. 
Let's see if I can. He might see this. Yeah, five minutes from now. Or maybe he said it. Time dilation. <laughs> yeah, th th that probably will come across at some point. Yeah, and for everybody, yeah, there will be an audio version out probably tomorrow. Uh, I'll have a very cool bonus as well for subscribers of uh, AB Prime and Patreon and all that. So it should be a good one. We apologize for the technical difficulties, but that's the internet. And yes, when Anthony is on, is like uh, Wolfgang Pauli. He attracts, instead of kinetic disruption, he attracts the, the these tech archons that... Uh, Every yeah, every interview Anthony does, there's going to be one. So he's going to try reconnecting. I think. I think he finally got the uh, the 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 mode of message I sent through. Yeah. Or maybe he'll just go have some uh, gin and tonics with his wife and be wife and uh, be wise uh, and enjoy the rest of his Sunday. He said he had till half past, right? Right, right. So yeah. So so we got a few it. more minutes if he can get back in. He's going to try to reconnect. Yeah. But you no, know, it's a it's a very good book. There's something for everyone there in this book, whether how you want to approach it. So studies, quantum physics, uh, mysticism, all the stuff. It's uh, pretty mind blowing. You know, well, one of us should have asked him uh, the definition of cheating the ferryman. How is how is that? Yeah, uh, I I think I remember, but I'd like to hear it from him exactly. All right. Well, if he if he cheats his virtual death today, then you can ask him. <laughs> Good old Karen. Yeah, you give the man uh, a few coins. And uh, for the audience, while I have your ear, please, uh, we will be changing the password to AB Live to the private RSS feed. Not AB Live, but just uh, AB Prime. So keep in mind, it will be a different password probably in the next week or two. So a little heads up to uh, go to the website or ask Vance and I what's the new password. So just in case, because it's already been, I think, September of 2021, I saw on the website was the last time you changed a password, Vance. Whoa. Yeah, we're due. It's like, it's almost August. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And other than that, uh, I think, uh, yeah, great shows coming in August. I really enjoy your support. Enjoy what everybody's doing. Keep spreading that gnosis. Keep searching for those answers because, yes, it's a busy universe out there. And uh, as Jeff Kripal said, uh, if you think the universe is weird, it's a lot weirder than you could have ever imagined. And Jeff Kripal has obviously done many books on all this paranormal stuff. So it's fun, but it's fun. As I say, it's fun and games yeah. until somebody loses a third eye, and then it's just <laughs> gnosis. Yeah, it's hard to um, it's hard to deal with uh, the the nature of reality when you know our minds put together clearly a synthetic version of it. You know, of, uh, just one aspect of it, and it's so consistent. Mm -hmm. But memory and consistency, I think, are the big uh, are the big. Uh, keywords uh memory you know we wouldn't have um you know consciousness and memory are intimately tied together yeah it's uh yeah it's hard definitely is hard and that's why you can't have time run you can't perceive time running backwards because your memories would start forgetting as you went backwards more and more right you'd forget more and more pretty soon you wouldn't know anything yeah 
which is where I think I am most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and what are, what are, are there any experiments that really blow you away about the nature of the universe, Vance? You're more science minded, or the, well, the, the double the, slit, the, the double slit, <clears throat> the spin correlation that um, you know that Anthony was talking about. Um, the um, it's what blows me away is is that um, we can't to this point have have a ex, an experiment that really hits the nature of consciousness directly the hard problem that's why they call it a hard problem uh, I'm not sure it's even possible not sure it's even possible. And uh, another thing that was in the news recently is uh, is the this Google's sentient AI and that guy that got fired by claiming that it was sentient and and so forth. Well, how can and you tell? And he's an Allstate Christian too. Oh, oh! Says, yeah, <laughs> I didn't that, know that. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, exposed. <laughs> Well, you know, you can claim it, but then again, here's another thing that blows me away. How do we know any of us are sentient besides ourselves? How do we know that everything, you know, everyone isn't just a a um, an automaton that responds to our exact little movements? Yeah, that is a hard one. I mean, I'm not a fan of AI becoming sentient. And I saw, yeah, I saw James True was on there on the chat. And on his show, he had a really, actually, he put it out on social media, but he had a good point. If if we created true AI, self-conscious AI, the first thing it would do, it would go and eliminate all the false bots and AIs. Say, <laughs> I'm wiping this BS because it's giving me a bad name. So. If there is true AI, it will wipe out all the other AI bots, all the competition, and just take over. Just like humans try to, right? <laughs> always, always. Yeah, we got to suppress animals and women, the nature. Yeah. It's a matter of power. How how much AI plus power is what where the trouble comes from. Like the Forbin Project movie. You remember that old, old movie, the Forbin Project, where, you know, it took over all the nuclear weapons and all that. You know, without power, you know, we don't have too much to worry about. But even economic power, even the fact that the power to replace us, right? Who knows? In 10 years, there'll be robots sitting here instead of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Skynet, Skynet. What is the nature of reality? <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Yeah, Anthony has been... Um... Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something else? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I don't think he's going to be able to come back. Uh, he hasn't been able to reconnect. Yeah, he says he's not getting a signal. So he probably won't be able to get back, which is weird. He's got very strong broadband, but the Archons don't care. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think we've lost Anthony for the evening, but it's still a great wow. interview uh great show we did almost a minute an hour and 20 so we're just gonna take this as a big w because the archons couldn't get us at the end so and so i think we will just wrap it up for you guys in the chat uh, again great questions uh, enjoy your comments your back and forth uh the whole Jaws, James Bond thing was really engaged. A lot of people went to YouTube <laughs> to look for it. I'm going to go to YouTube later and look for it uh, with the C-3PO silver leg. Uh, but yeah, it's a weird universe. So don't be the 
don't be the change you want to see in the world, as Gandhi said, but be the strange you want to see in the world. Just be stranger than this universe because that's what it wants from you. And uh, we will have next week's shows on, uh, yeah, Philip K. Dick and David Icke and conspiracy. So the fun shall continue. The high weirdness shall continue. Absolutely. So other than that, well, Vance, as always, thanks for keeping us company here in the desert of the real. Appreciate your company and everything you do. Oh, I love being here and love being here with Anthony. And maybe we'll get him next time. Maybe he'll come on again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll have him on a live show. That's an easy, we just jump on it and do it. Yeah. So we'll see it. But today was a good day. And again, appreciate your support and help. And everybody, please have a good rest of your Sunday and have a good next next week in the simulation. Take care. Take care, everyone. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Anthony killing it with life after death and so much more. As mentioned in the intro, uh, tech archons nagged us around an hour and 15 minutes, alas. Of course, it had to be when I was about to ask him about different afterlife models. Thus and thusly, full interview for everyone, which you just heard, but... As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include a past interview I did with Tony, where he explains many of his ideas from his book, Is There Life After Death? And he does talk about afterlives. A perfect compliment to the interview you just heard, and one that will blow your lower and higher mind. So please subscribe for this little bonus. And your daemon will thank you. And please continue to support this red pill cafeteria. It will cost you less than a buck per episode. And that's a deal of your many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics are more important than ever in this Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. But this is our time to shine like crazy diamonds. We high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.